But what would happen if you had a market, just a pretend market, and you got singers to trade using tunes? So just small tunes where they would, could trade their stocks. Then maybe you could create a chorus of trading, a musical chorus that represented the financial market. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I am excited as my guest, Greg Davies, has so much information and knowledge to share with us. But before we get into the episode, if you have been enjoying the podcast and the guest, please send over your favorite episode to your friend, colleague, family member, whomever would like to listen. And if you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that would be excellent. So my guest today is Greg Davies. Who is Greg? Well, he's globally recognized as an expert in applied decision science. And I think that's important that he really focuses on the applied part of decision science. Greg is a smart guy. He's got a PhD in behavioral science from Cambridge. You will see through the conversation that Greg really focuses on that applied part. What application does it have on our daily decisions that can help us make better financial decisions in our household? And we get into that. Greg actually started the banking world's first behavioral finance team when he was the head of behavioral and quant finance at Barclays. Later in 2017, he joined Oxford Risk, where he is now, as he's the lead development of behavioral decision support software. It's pretty interesting stuff. They're making software that's helping us, the consumers, make better financial decisions. When this episode started, you heard a clip from one of Greg's creative projects where he actually co-created and staged an experimental reality opera, which was actually recorded live with a live music performance from a functioning trading floor. That's right. He created an opera that recorded live and performed live from a trading floor. Listen to what Greg has to say about it. Why this is particularly interesting for me is that uh, as someone who specializes in behavioral finance, um, markets are really representative of the emotions, the emotional states of the people involved in them. This desire to to trade, this desire to, to get gains, this fear of losses, all these things express themselves in this outcry, this, this frenzy of the market. How cool is that? Greg co-created this live opera where the singers operated and performed on a live trading floor and had to sing out their trades. And what the product was is that music you were hearing in the background it sounded like a live musical performance. You know, we're using a very, very good choir, the Elysian singers. Their, their general musicianship is very, very good. You could say that they are experts in Baroque and contemporary music, and they picked up 
the challenges of this piece very, very quickly. You know, they were able to negotiate the difficulties of learning these phrases and remembering them and trying to keep a pitch with the cello. You know, all this sort of thing that I think your standard opera singer would probably find more difficult. This project is fascinating. Listen to them explain how they even set up the audience to enrich the experience for everyone in attendance. What I felt we really needed to do was create something non-naturalistic in that sense. I mean, it's basically, it's still a trading floor, but what we've done is we've, rather than having the singers all concentrated in one group in the middle, we placed them around the room. We created almost like a stylized trading ring so that the whole audience is seated within this, you know, in this, in this big room here at Mansion House. The traders are, are all placed around the outside. Super, super interesting. So on the show, we do talk to Greg about this wonderful event. Addition to that, we talk about how applied behavioral finances and technology, the innovation in technology, can really help us as consumers make better money decisions for our households. And we talk about why making rational money decisions doesn't really exist. And the reason why is because rational money decisions aren't really a thing because when you consider us humans, we have a ton of emotions that are influencing our decisions. So perhaps we are making rational decisions because we are humans and we have emotions. We touch on emotions and money and how to make proper decisions if at all possible. Greg and his team are working on some amazing innovative softwares that are really going to help improve the consumer's ability to make these decisions. And hearing Greg's thought process behind these technologies and tools as a way to help us increase our financial well-being is truly amazing. I appreciate the work Greg and his team are doing. We then talk a bit about the philosophy of rationality. What is rational? Who are making the decisions for these computers to be applied for us? Because that's a real thought to consider is if machines or technology are going to start making decisions for us, who's creating that code that tells the robot or the computer what to do? These are real considerations that we have to consider. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Greg Davies. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for a conversation. I've been reading a fair bit of your work online, and you are up to some fascinating things. The first part that I want to talk about is part of, I guess, your story that goes back to 2012 in London, England. And online, I listened to something that I've never heard in my life before, nor did I ever imagine I'd listened to this before, but it was, it was amazing. What I'm talking about is when you co-created a live, in your words, experimental opera, which was performed from a real trading floor. And, and just so everyone knows, trading floor is those floors we see on TV, on the movies, when people are selling stocks like we see in, uh, on Wall Street. So let's start there. Somehow you created this live opera from a trading floor. Please explain <laughs> <laughs> sure. Word opera is, is a, a difficult one, yeah, so it gets in the way a little bit, perhaps. But the closest parallel I could do here is if you watch starlings, to you know these, these videos of starling murmuration where these flocks of giant flocks of birds, they all wheel and turn. What's happening there is every one of these birds is, is doing their own individual things, but the, the patterns that emerge out of it for, or at the group or schools of fish are actually quite beautiful. And when we think of people's financial behavior in the market. What we have is a lot of individuals each pursuing their own agenda, 
I want to make money. I want to buy this, sell this. In the market data, you get these similar patterns of prices rising, falling. And it's a bit like a human version of, of Starling murmuration. So what we did is, well, can we capture this musically? And we got a bunch of singers and we trained them to trade using all the hand signals, the whole thing. It was a simplified market. So we had only a set number of assets. But the guy I, I worked with, he's a composer and a computer scientist. He created these phrases so that for every asset, when people were matching, when people were matching buy and sell trade, the two phrases interlocked harmonically. And if everyone is buying together, in other words, if the markets are going up, then it was all harmonious. But the minute people were trying to sell and the market was going down, you had these discordant clashing harmonies. Now, the great thing about this was the seniors, their job was to, to increase their profits. They were paid at the end of the night according to how well the trading had gone. So they weren't pursuing any sort of musical aesthetic. They were just trying to make money. Music arose spontaneously from people buying and selling, but using musical phrases to do so. So it's a, a very weird idea, I think, but it was, it was great fun to do. It's fascinating. I had a hard time finding clips. I, I found a couple of interviews where they had little clips. Is there a longer clip on the internet somewhere? I think the longest we've got is about an eight-minute clip with some interviews and, and some music, et cetera. We probably somewhere have a, a recording of the, of the whole thing. I'd have to dig it out. Uh -huh. <laughs> somewhere in the, in, the, in the depths of time. Yeah. That eight-minute clip, is that on a easily accessed uh, site? Yeah, it should be on YouTube. I can, I can, I can oh, send you a link. Yeah. I can send you a link. Yeah, it, it was phenomenal. I, I heard, like, I read about it, and then I heard it, and they were, when they're singing the numbers of the... It was, it was fascinating. Yeah, some of it's quite eerie, actually. Yeah. So, in one of the interviews, I heard you say that music is about expressing our emotions, it's about expressing our feelings, our responses to the world. And it really got me thinking about, like, the trading floor and how you know, it's not much different and that you drew that parallel as well. And then I started thinking about the context of this podcast where we talk about our relationships with money. What, if anything, could you say that you've learned from the opera trading floor and this idea of we're all really just trying to express our emotions and feelings, but what, what would you say you've learned from this experience that we can take as individuals into account when we think about our relationship with our own money? So the clinical parallel I can think of to all our day-to-day decision-makings is there are two ways of approaching music. One is someone composes something and writes down all the notes and you play it and you play it better or worse. The other one is in more of a jazz-type environment where people are improvising and they're, they're making things up and they're adapting to each other as time goes on. Our decision-making is all much more like, like the latter. So we are constantly adapting to changes in our environment. A pandemic comes along, something happens in our lives. We're basically making it up as we go along. And that means that our decisions are reactive, but they're also very emotional. Almost all of classical finance theory assumes we're playing from a score. It assumes that we're, we're, we're playing a set of notes that someone has thoughtfully and rationally written down that we could copy. And that is a very long way from how any of us are actually going through our financial lives. And the problem with that, the essential problem at the heart of this is because we're reacting and because it's emotional, many of our financial decisions are pursuing what feels emotionally comfortable to me now, what feels emotionally uh, intuitive or, or right in my gut right now. And in every single decision that we have, there is always a gap between the sensible thing to do for my long-term objectives and the thing that feels emotionally comfortable right now. And 
for me, the, the bulk of behavioral finance is, can we help people to narrow that gap? Can we help people to get more comfortable doing something that is closer to the right thing? Problem comes when the emotions take us off down a series of one of to the other short-term decisions, and that can be very costly for our, our long-term needs. And we need to find some way of blending the short-term and the long-term, the rational and, and the emotional, and I guess the spontaneous, which are planned, and always has to be a blend of the two. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer. I mean, I can't tell how many times we've read, take the emotions out of your financial decisions, which I mean, you just said I would never advocate over that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. But yet I hear you saying, and I see this parallel with music is like you talked about, it seems to me when people are composing music, and I don't know much about music, but they're, they're responding to the emotions now, but they're also drawing in like the, the technical techniques of the music, but blending them both to your point. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things there. One is preparation and training and skills. So we could all become better decision makers in the same way as, as jazz musicians can improvise better if they practice more. So we can become better decision makers if we familiarize ourselves with the rules and the structures. And then the other bit is very seldom is, is musical improvisation done entirely free of structure. Mm. There might be someone leading it. There's a certain amount of structure, and it's, it's the interplay of that structure and the freedom that, that makes it effective. So I, th- I think you're right. We can prepare for our financial improvisation in life if we do the work to build the skin set and the competence for ourselves up front, to prepare ourselves emotionally so that we're not constantly torn off into a panic or into a irrational exuberance or, or you know, whatever emotion happens to surface at the time. And if we build for ourselves a system of structures that guide the decision-making. Mm. And by the way, you said that, you know, don't think it's possible to eliminate emotions from, from decision-making. I would say it's, it's even stronger than that. In order for me to make a decision, I need to care about what happens in the future. Otherwise, there's absolutely no basis on, me for, on which I can make a decision. And if I share myself of all emotions, it means I, I basically have no emotional attachment to A or B. In fact, it, it, it renders the whole of decision-making uh, entirely pointless if we don't have some form of, of emotional pursuit. And in an ideal world, that emotional pursuit, the, the emotional attachment is allied to what I'm trying to achieve, which maybe I'm trying to get higher returns for less risk. It's when my emotional self starts to deviate from the other things, the other objectives, plans that I'm, I'm trying to achieve in my life, that we have a problem. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you clarifying that and even going deeper to the emotions. And I like this idea of having a structure, but then responding to it. And you making me think of this, uh, this gentleman that I met. I've had him on my podcast a few times and we started doing, I have to tell you because it's about music and money. <laughs> we started doing these things called um, financial anthems. And this guy is really, really trained well as a musician. He lives in Hawaii and he can listen to a story and make a song up on the spot but he's got a structure in his head. He knows, you know, he's been doing this for 25 years. And we've done this little program thing that we, I bring in structured questions that help people. We call it Awaken Your Money Story. And he listens in and sings an instant song right at the end. And you're just making me think he's got this structure, but then he's responding to the moment. And and he just ties into people's emotions, much like what I think your opera trading thing would have uh, created. For a terrifying moment there, I thought you were going to ask me, to construct a song on the moment <laughs> about this financial theme. Yeah, well, you know, one day we can get him on here and he'll sing you a song. Yeah, that'd be amazing. 
Yeah, he's phenomenal. I'll send you a, the link after because he we did an episode with him and he sang a song instantly right after. But anyways, okay, so we mentioned the word behavioral finance. I think a lot of people understand behavioral finance, but a lot of people think they understand it in a certain way. I want to make sure everybody is clear on what behavioral finance is and what you actually do in your bios, like I think said in decision making. So can you explain in relevant terms to people, what is behavioral finance and applied decision making? So I think of it really as just as a, as a mashup between psychology and, and economic theory. It's trying to understand how and why people make the decisions they do. And particularly in applied behavioral finance, to use that knowledge to help give them the structures or the guidance to help them make better decisions. Now, either of those on their own doesn't do enough. So economics on its own typically assumes that people are rational and that emotion doesn't enter into it. And it tells you in a great deal of technical detail what the right answer is, but it tells you very little about how to get there and how to carry it out and how to stick with it through the the trials and tribulations of the market, ups and downs, et cetera. The psychology side on its own is very good at describing what humans do and why they do it, but doesn't have a very good model of what correct good financial behavior is. And so for me, behavioral finance is bringing together the two such that from the financial side and the economic side, I have a really good idea of what I'm trying to help people to achieve, what good looks like, what the target is. And from the psychological side, I know why that is uncomfortable for them. And so I can, I can do my best to, to make it more comfortable for them to get closer to that right answer. And I don't think we can approach any decision-making without having both of those sides. We need to have a theoretical idea of what we're chasing, and we need to have a, a practical idea of why it's difficult for us as humans to do that. And when we bring them together, we can start to guide people in a way that makes them comfortable doing stuff that otherwise wouldn't be the thing that would, that would feel innate to them in that moment. I appreciate your perspective on what the field is and the outcome of the field. And I say that because I've often heard people make observations or, or it could even be critiques about the behavioral finance field is that at times it could be a lot of academia listing out here's 300 million, it's not that much, I'm exaggerating, but biases that we have to combat against. And, you know, good luck, figure it out. Here's a very academic book. A reason why I want to get you on, because I feel like you're really doing the work, so to speak, that uses the learnings to make meaningful impact. But why do you feel in the past, because we've known about behavioral finance for decades now, why, if maybe it has, maybe I'm wrong, but why has it maybe not been so effective in the past to help us make better financial decisions? Ooh, I think, I think there's a, a lot of reasons for that. One is simply awareness and acceptance of practical interventions that are best surrounded. When I started inside the banking world with a behavioral team in 2006, the majority of my first year, two years, even three years, was simply persuading people inside the company that had already hired me that there was some value to what we were doing. So sometimes it's just getting enough inertia that people will let you actually do something. By the way, I, I completely agree. You know, this list of biases approach is completely inadvertent to me. It's, you go onto Wikipedia and Google psychological bias or whatever it is, and you get a list of 170. It's cute that we know that much more about how as humans we're all irredeemably fallible. It is utterly impractical 
as a mechanism for design for solutions. Because of those dozens and dozens of biases in every environment, some of them push in one direction, some of them push in other directions, they, they interact with each other, they conflict with each other, and you simply cannot um, take a complex decision world and solve it from a behavioral perspective by going through a list of biases one by one and, and ticking them off. And that, I think, is a problem. So there, there, a lot of the academic work here has been built on identifying things that can be categorized, biases, things that we can understand. If I isolate this from everything else in a group of experimental subjects, I can demonstrate that humans are biased in this way and that way and that way. And that's fine inside a lab in a controlled experiment. In the world out there, we have to step away from this, this convenient list of biases because the world is complex and it's messy and a lot of this is it's going to be assimilating the literature and then trying to put it together in a way that is practically applicable to that specific um, environment. So that's another issue is just the translation of academia in the practical corporate world or commercial world is, is not as easy as I, here's the textbook, now let me do chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, etc. Another problem is in many cases in decision-making, uh, and let's just take, for example, financial advice. Financial advisors are typically trained in financial theory and portfolio theory, and they know how to put together portfolios, and this is what the, the right answer is mathematically, et cetera. And we could come along and we could say, well, it's not enough. Giving people the right answer is never enough to get them to that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all of these behavioral ideas and behavioral tools in addition, and it's going to make you a better advisor. And what happens is, yes, I might have given them the tools to be a better advisor. I've also made their lives a hell of a lot complicated in the process. And so my view is, if we're going to add a lot of behavioral elements and overlays to guiding people to better financial decision-making, we cannot do it by sitting people in seminar rooms every six months and downloading PowerPoint decks at them. We actually have to build it into technology. So I think that the real sweet spot for behavioral finance, behavioral anything on its own, completely useless. It is not until we embed it into or mix it with data analytics, with software, with technology, with digital delivery, with personalization, because in doing so, we get the machine to crunch the data and do all the stuff that humans are bad at. So all these moving parts, you know, we can use technology to absorb the, the added complexity of, of adding behavioral things into it. But we, we also, in doing so, make it easier for people to adopt it because they don't go, oh, I love this, but you've just tripled my working day and I don't have enough hours, so I'll just go back to how I did it before. So an awful lot of this isn't really about the behavioral science. It's about the practicalities of making it useful and easy to use and the adoption process of that inside organizations and, and by the end users. That adoption, I think, it's so critical because if, if we don't have this information adopted, then to your point, and as an advisor myself, we're already, I think, the, the status 35,000 decision, whatever it is, a day. Now we're adding this extra layer of complexity. And I also find that with clients, if you start educating them on like loss aversion or mental accounting, whatever it is, they're, they're like, oh, this makes sense. But then they don't do it. And the next appointment, they almost feel some levels of shame. Like, ah, oh, I didn't do this. Like, I know this is happening. So I really like this idea of, and I think I read this quote from you somewhere, maybe it was yours or the or someone interviewed you, but it was to getting out of the lab and into the hands of the people. 
which makes me think of like implementation science, which I think is such a critical component to all science is how do we, to use your words, have this adopted by other people or people who need it to make a meaningful impact. So what, what is Oxford Risk? What is Greg doing right now or in the next five to 10 years that is getting it out of the labs into the hands of end consumers? And I know you go to the advisors, but ultimately you're, you know, it serves the the consumer. So what can we expect as consumers or as advisors from technology like your firm? Yeah. So where we start from, and from the footwork we do into, into three boxes. One is understanding. So we use the technology, including psychometric profiling tools, but also just technology to streamline and make fact-find processes simpler, to gather all the information at a personalized individual level on each client that you can keep track of it the machine can keep track of it. You're not asking the human advisor to keep track of 300 pieces of information on each client because there's profiling systems that can do that very quickly and easily. That's the understanding. The second piece is, is matching. We recently uh, did a, we've done two large-scale studies looking at uh, the issue of noise in financial advice. And I don't know if you've seen it, but Daniel Kahneman put up a book earlier this year called, called Noise. Mm-hmm. The question is simply, if you go, if I want financial advice, and I go to 200 financial advisors, what I should get, roughly speaking, is is a fairly similar answer from all 200 advisors because the answer I get should be right for me and my financial circumstances and my risk attitudes, et cetera. What we actually find, and this this is not to um, in any way denigrate financial advisors because we see the same in doctors, we see the same in judges, we see the same Mm -hmm. across the board, if you give a client case study to 200 advisors, 200 very different answers. And, and I mean very different in the sense that everywhere we have done this, and we give a client case study to 200 advisors, we go, amongst other questions, let's just say, what is the right level of equity, stocks and shares versus bonds in this portfolio? And you'll get an answer for every case study you give that goes from 0% to 100%, depending on which advisor you ask. Now, one of the reasons for that is not that advisors aren't considering the right things in, in putting the information together, is that we're all walking around with different mental models about what's important. So we all look at the same client, and one person goes, well, you know, it's the risk tolerance that's the most important, that gets a higher weight, someone else will give something else a higher weight. And we can use technology to reduce subjectivity, to reduce noise in the system, such that, and, and this is not there to eliminate, uh, eliminate the, the human. This is there to enhance and empower the human. So we have a system that does the number juggling and says, based on, on everything we know about this person, here's the scope for where that answer should land. I'll give you a medical analogy here. In medicine, there's a distinction between diagnosis and prescription. Hmm. If you go to the doctor and you've got something wrong with you, you know what this doctor, you know, looking at you from a distance down at Zoom call, for example, and going, well, that's, and I think you've got X, right? If, if you need an X-ray, you want an X-ray. If you need an MRI scan, you want to have the MRI scan. If you need a blood test, you want the blood test. In the diagnosis process, the more technology and the less human there is, the better the diagnosis you're going to get because you're going to get, a, you know, you're going to get something that's consistent, et cetera. You do not, however, want the technology to tell you what to do about it because that is about me and my choices and my family and my lifestyle. And maybe this month is not the, the best time for me to undergo the operation and I, can I manage it by lifestyle challenges. That is a human discussion and a values discussion. And there, 
you could use technology to feed the advisor or feed the doctor with, with the diagnosis process and give her the information in order to free up their time to do the stuff that humans are good at, which is juggling values, which is thinking about what's important and the trade-offs, et cetera. So in that, that minimum, so we start with understanding, then matching. The matching is to define the right answer and we want consistency. The last bit is guiding. This is about putting information in the hands of, of advisors that helps them to provide the right conversation and the right communication with that client at the right time. One of the things we've seen through the COVID pandemic is in March 2020, when the COVID pandemic was just kicking off and the markets dropped 20% worldwide, et cetera, every single financial advisor around the world simultaneously had the financial circumstances of every single one of their clients change in the space of weeks, not, not months or years. And yet the advice processes are typically very front-loaded. I do all my trunk up front, and then mm. I've got a very slow annual review process, and I'll come back and see you in a few years. That is not fast enough to keep up with changing circumstances of a dynamically moving situation. As people's preferences change, their goals change, their, their lifestyle, their, their circumstances change. So the, we can use technology to make things more dynamic, to put in the hands of the advisors in real time what's important. They can be in touch with more clients more frequently with the conversations that humans are best at. Wow. As an advisor, this is, I feel, incredibly important. And you guys are doing some fascinating work. And, and I really appreciate it how you started at the personalized part, because I feel like too often we blanket approaches in the, the financial advice that we give, which is not personalized. And if you have this, these technologies that allow us as an advisor, whomever, to access personalized information, I think it's just required actually using this technology to to use your words, reduce this noise, because I can tell you, I know through paperwork, through life, like advisors' own life's busyness, this, that, whatever, our own biases, we don't give to your point about the, it's inconsistent information. And it's to the detriment of the client, the end user. So many emotions are attached to our money. And advisors, if we know we're not giving the best people information. I think adopting these types of technology is, is wonderful. And I love how you say then you let the client decide. We talked about that implementation and I like how there's that gap, I guess, of, okay, now does it fit to your client? Really exciting. Like really, really, really exciting here. I know your background or part of your studies was in like elements of philosophy. When we think about who should be making decisions for these technologies, these machines, do we have to be careful of who's designing these machines? What decisions are they making? What are the consequences of these decisions? What is the right decision? What is the wrong decision? Is it rational to pursue X? Are these considerations that people like yourselves and technology companies should be or need to be considering? Well, we absolutely need to be, completely. Trying to help drive people's decisions it goes back to that point, you need to have a very clear idea of what good looks like, of what a good decision is and a bad decision. I don't think that anyone has a, you know, a monopoly on determining that, and we're getting better at some of this stuff over time. I wouldn't claim that, for example, our software is perfect in any way in this regard, but we're constantly chipping away at going, well, what can we identify where we think you know, we could improve this or make this better? And we're constantly going back to the the, the kind of theory and the 
concept and, and if you like, a philosophical framework of what's the goal we're trying to nudge people towards in building this. And I think that's good. You know, the reason that this is important is you can imagine technology and software out there where their objective is entirely different. Their job, they think, well, I want to make money. I just want to encourage people to trade lots. Mm-hmm. And I don't, we don't have to think too hard to think of platforms and systems out there and where that is, in fact, exactly the case, right? Now, you could deploy all of the same sort of behavioral personalization, behavioral science techniques in order to get people to basically just throw their money away, trading frequently, placing large bets on falling knives. And that is a problem because from a behavioral science perspective, it's a tool that can be used well, or is it is a tool that can be used, a tool that can be used to help people make better decisions, or a tool that can be used to fleece them. Mm. Um, some behavioral tools are particularly dangerous. You know, it's, it's beloved of the marketing and advertising fraternity that we, we use behavioral tool of social proof. People like you also do this. And it makes me really comfortable that oh, other people like me are doing this, therefore I can do it. The problem in investing is it doesn't matter who you are. There are a lot of people like you who are doing some pretty bloody stupid things. And the minute we start using what other people actually do as our reference point for, for the behavior we're trying to drive, rather than a very clear-eyed assessment of what good decision-making looks like, you know, then, then we have a problem. And this is why, why to my mind, the finance piece of behavioral finance is as important as the behavioral piece. Because it's the finance piece and the economics and the theory that gives us the start to steer. It can never be the whole answer because it doesn't consider people's emotional comfort. It doesn't consider the, the fact that a lot of really simple things are difficult to do. So, you know, the concept of things can be simple but not easy. Dieting is simple but not easy. I know exactly what I need to do. I just need to eat less. Is that easy? No. It is extremely difficult. And that is true of, of most of what finance has done in the world. It has said, let us tell you what to do under the assumption that you will find it easy to follow through our instructions. What we need to do is to do that. Let us tell you what to do and let us help guide you to how to do it in a way that becomes easier. Mm. And, I, and I really appreciate your acknowledging and awareness that a piece when you said, let us tell you what to do is to, you know, there, there needs to be some responsibility from the creator because like those apps that you're talking about, this year alone, they're, they're just decimating people's financial health. So really, really fascinating things that you guys are doing. I want to talk about social good and sustainable investing. But before we go on to that, so we're talking a lot about the financial advisor level. I know you guys work with financial advising firms who end client is our end user is the client, like an individual. When, when we look at like systemic change, real change, recently I had a Dr. Biswa Diener. He studies income and happiness a phenomenal individual. And he talked about how there's overwhelming evidence that when a nation receives more wealth, the well-being of the participants in the nation increase more so obviously than like each individual increasing their wealth. It's more efficient to have the nation increase wealth. So this is like systems thinking is when the top system implements changes, then the participants within the nation can see more change. From a, so from a systems level perspective, what do you think the role of governments, politicians, or any other system levels can start to be curious and brainstorm how they can use your guys' science, your guys' theories to help us all make better financial decisions for our households? There are a lot of things that, that we could do that are 
targeting at specific, specific decisions that are behavioral that will, that will help change in the whole. The post China, if you like, for, or I think behavioral finance implementations is automatic enrollment to pensions. So, you know, you, you, you go, let's, let's make people opt out rather than opt in. And that has had a, made a huge difference. Right. My focus and concern is different to those is I think trying to change the level of focus onto the individual and away from the product. So an awful lot of financial services is let me sell you this comp to pay that, this account, savings account or a current account or an investment account. And then I'm going to concentrate on in the investment account what I sell you within this and it's, it's all about product and it's all about containers. It's not about the individual and how they stitch these things together. So we both have a financial system. You've got a set of various investments or accounts, et cetera, which unless you're quite unusual, you've done it like everyone else. Over the course of your life, you have cobbled together this probably somewhat rickety set, set of accounts that are sort of connected. When you're a student, you've got this one and then you added this later. And you've been expected to do all of that yourself. And because you're a finance expert, yours might be slightly more organized than other people's. But because it happened gradually over time, piece by piece, probably it's not an optimal system, right? And we don't give people any guidance in the system and insistence in how to build their systems. We just sell them containers. That for me is, is a flip that, that needs to happen. We need to start thinking about the system of the household and the system of the individual rather than the, the product of the individual. The second thing is you as an individual, you have to do all of the work to make all of the decisions of how are you going to transfer. I've got to decide, am I going to move money from my savings account to here? This month, am I going to decide how much money to put in insurance, et cetera? Every one of those micro decisions about the flows between containers and your system up to you. The decision burden has been placed on you. And occasionally, you know, a bank will come and go, well, we'll help you to automate that and overspill from one account mm. to another. But if as an industry and as a country, we could focus on how do I help to give people a system that's coherent? And then rather than spend all my efforts trying to fraud them stuff to fit into it, we could spend our efforts trying to help them to automate 95% of the monthly decisions they have to make about how to maintain that system that they're not experts in doing. And that creates for a lot of people a huge amount of financial angst. The fact that all of us on a monthly basis have to make all of these tiny decisions about spending more, save more, ensure this, da 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 da, creates financial anxiety. It reduces our financial well being. And it, it means that we end up actually probably doing things very inefficiently. So I think that a flip of focus onto all the household and onto flows rather than stocks is, is uh, other two systems-based things I would recommend. I had a conversation last night with someone roughly about kind of what you're saying. I was like, I mean, I, I, your work has been in my mind for last week, so it's probably inspired by you unconsciously. But I was thinking, yeah, like what happens, because we're talking about mortgages, people tend to pay their mortgages because you have to. And then we started talking about defined bent defined pension plans where I see this as people who have a defined pension plan, they didn't even think about it. The system, so to speak, was set up and they didn't have to think about it. And I thought, what happens if we just totally automated everything? Some goes into your savings, your pension, so to speak. I was like, some could be allocated to like these online will companies because I see tons of people without wills. Like the online company comes in, to your point, 95% of the decisions are being automated. And then he came back to me He's like, but is that not paternalizing people, telling them what to do? And I hear that. And 
to use something you said earlier, I think the guiding and allowing people to make those decisions or maybe even opt out would be important. But from my perspective, when you talk about financial well-being, we both are in this industry and we see the, the crippling effects financial anxiety has on people. And I don't know, it's something that I'm exploring. Is that paternalizing someone? I'd be curious to see your thoughts. I know you just brought up the same idea, but if someone said that to you, how would you respond? I would say the important thing is not foist a set of rules on people, but to give them a menu from which they can start to select rules that would gradually and incrementally over time start to automate things. So if we go, you know, I, I want, I make a decision that something is a good thing for me to do every month. And then I have the opportunity to basically bake that into an automated thing. There's a very simple set of rules of here are four or five things that you could do in your financial system that we could take away from you. So you don't have to remember to do it every month. You don't have to remember to calculate the optimal amount to do, et cetera. Let us do it for you, but we're doing it with you because we're not imposing it on you. We're letting you configure, you know, do I do it one month, three months? And over time, you can let people gradually build up their own and configure their own set of rules as they get more aware of, of what these are. It can start really simple and gradually you can get people who will, you know, start to tweak the levers and, you know, twiddle the buttons on, on various things. It's making them complicit into the design of their own system. So the design that we have to do is not to say, here's the sets of rules we want to impose on people. It's here are the sets of rules that it would be useful for people to think about imposing on themselves. And here are the sliders and here are the buttons that, that you know, would, would they'd be able to do more of this or less of this. But we give them control of that system. And we give them control gradually in the sense that to start with, it's only a few simple things. And then once those are in place, and those, those should be the big things. And the way to get at that, by the way, is at the front of all of this, I think what people really struggle with, because what they've always been given is a pot here and a pot here and a pot there. The most useful thing we could possibly give someone is an emotionally intuitive and comfortable way of visualizing their whole financial system. What have I got? Where is it going? And... I don't think we're a long way from being able to do that. The data analytics are much better. The technology, the, the design is all good. And once I can do that, you can help people grasp the whole rather than, oh, this idea of mental accounting. You know, mental accounting or any form of accounting is essentially a coping mechanism for complexity. Mm. We go, I, you know, I, this is all too complex. I'm just going to think about this part and maybe that one and the transfer between them. And what happens when you do that is you get the benefits of simplicity and you get all the costs of not thinking about the system as a whole. So if we can help people to, to fly above that system and, and see it, see what's important more usefully, uh, we've been building this financial well-being mechanism, which effectively looks at your whole balance sheet and your, your cash flows, your income and your expenditure, et cetera. And it's a scoring system that's got lots of pieces that feed into it. And what it does is it identifies the weakest link. So there's absolutely no point in you worrying and speaking about, do I buy this investment or that investment with 2% of my investable wealth, when at the same time, I'm simply spending more than I earn every month. And if the system can go, stop focusing on stuff over here, this is the stuff that matters for you now. Now let's give you some rules that you can sign up to that will help you solve that big problem. And then once that's solved, we can move on to the next one. So it's helping to build a journey that people can go through in order for them to gradually start automating and, and systematizing 
their entire financial existence. That is fantastic. I feel like that would definitely allow people to start to enjoy like this idea of financial well-being goes really it roots from well-being. And if I'm always paying the cost, to use your words, managing that system, it's really difficult to enjoy, especially when I know I'd get things wrong and I feel bad about it. I think there's a very immediate parallel for this, right? So take a big company or even a medium-sized company, right? The CEO does not want to worry about where all the financial flows are. So the CEO hires a chief financial officer. And the chief financial officer is about making sure that the financial system works well and the information flows up to the CEO at the right point, et cetera. If we can use technology to give people essentially a CFO for their lives so that they, as the CEO of their lives, don't have to constantly worry about these 30 decisions I have to make on a weekly or a monthly basis. You've bought them time. You've bought them emotional comfort. You've bought them space. And you've brought them a clear review and, and better information. And so I think that's where we need to aim. Because, of course, we can't all go and afford to hire someone to do our finances for us. But we can use technology increasingly to help us take away the burden of decision-making that we struggle with. And, you know, you used a word that makes me excited to see what yourself and Oxford Risk are going to be doing is when you said, with you. You know, I think that's that's really important that with you, and it's not for you, well, like the technology is doing it for you, but the with you is in partnership. And I think it has to be because otherwise you'll just get a whole scale rejection of it. You know, it's, you'll get a, an organ transplant that doesn't stick. And people go, you know, I don't like having things imposed on me. Some people are more or less comfortable with technology, et cetera. We have a whole system of tools to measure multiple dimensions of financial personality. Some people, I'll just give you one example, mm-hmm. one scale, which is desire for guidance. There are people out there who only feel comfortable with their portfolio or their investment solution if they feel they have shared the burden of decision-making with an advisor or with a friend or something. That's, that gives them the comfort they need. There are other people, very often entrepreneurs, who will only feel comfortable with that solution if they feel they have made the decisions and they've been in command. Now, knowing which of these people is in front of you is vitally important if you're going to give, give them something to help them because you have to give it to them in the right way, in a way that feels that they have emotional command or they have the emotional comfort to follow up on it. Uh, And it it has to be with you at every step, I think. And, you know, I think it just is going to enhance and elevate the experienced clients and advisors, whatever this advisor looks like in the future, because we opened up talking about the open outcry trader and the opera and the open outcry traders trying to get his voice heard, screaming the trade, screaming the trade. In the opera, the singer's trying to get heard above all the music. And our clients, they're, they're no different. They have these emotions, these feelings, and well, we aren't taught how to express these emotions that we have around our money. But if the advisor can now focus on actually facilitating financial help to recognize where those emotions, attachments are to money and not have to worry about the numerous amounts of paperwork, worrying about the the small investment uh, allocation that could just all be automated. I think we can really, really elevate and actually work towards financial well-being or well-being as opposed to just using it as a, a catchphrase. Yeah, completely agree. Well, I, I want to be mindful of the time here. I want to hear where people can hear about your work and if you're writing Oxford Risk. But before that, let's imagine that you are at the end of your life 
uh, quick transition here, just now the end of your life. And you're anywhere in the world that brings you peace and a sense of well-being. It could be staring at an ocean, a meadow, a mountain, a lake, wherever brings you peace. And you decide to write a letter. I didn't ask you if you have children. Do you have children? I have two kids, yeah. Okay. You decide to write your children's children, so your grandkids, a letter on what you learned about achieving financial well-being. What would the theme of that letter be? Oh, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I think there are two things that always come together. We often talk, talk about the level amount of risk that people take. and Is it the appropriate amount, et cetera? And for me, that's almost always the wrong question. And it's not only actually a financial question, but I think what, what everyone needs to do is they need to think about it in two parts. Firstly, I need to build security and resilience in order to find myself the ability to take the gambles and, and take the risks. And if we think about risk as just a position on one continuum, you know, how much risk am I willing to take? Am I a risk taker or not a risk taker? You missed the point. I think that we should all probably be risk takers more than we are inclined to, but we should be comfortable in doing so because we know that we have built first resilience and security as a foundation. And that requires diversification. I don't just mean diversification across asset classes. I mean diversification in terms of your skill sets that you have to bear, your ability to deal with stuff the world throws at you, the pandemic, it's, it's resilience. And for me, optimal levels of risk-taking is almost always a barbell. It's about do the work to make sure that you are prepared, you're more and more prepared to deal with what the world throws at you with whatever you've got left, be prepared to take more risk with it than you're, than you're tempted to because that's the stuff. At that point, you've got your security blanket, but you've, you've got to be prepared to roll the dice for the rest because it's only by taking the risk that you actually get the real step-ups in your financial returns or your educational returns or whatever it may be. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that answer. Wow, what a great conversation, Greg. For the listeners, if they're curious about your work, Oxford Risk, where could you point them to on the World Wide Web? We have a website, oxfordrisk.com, like the websites of, uh, of many small and constantly moving companies. It's, it's always slightly behind where we are, but we're, <laughs> we're updating it on a reasonably regular basis. For the more absolute, for the really up-to-date stuff, we have a Twitter account, which is Oxford Risk Limited. I'm on Twitter quite a lot as well. So Greg B. Davies, at Greg B. Davies, uh, putting out a lot of the stuff that we, that we write and, and pump out there. Those are probably the, the, the best places to, to find that. We're, you know, we're, we're essentially trying to produce software, but all on the side, we do a lot of blogging and writing and publications as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. As always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for tuning in. Until next week, have yourself a good one.